for many, many biblical reasons, God has promised that the church will not go through the wrath of God on earth. The Jews will. The church won't. The Jews are going to be as Noah in the ark. They're going to be preserved through the flood of God's wrath on the earth. The church is going to be much like Enoch. They're going to be taken right up out of this world without dying if they're still alive and remain to that coming. And then begins the fifth event in God's great plan. And basically what we have here is the final week of God's prophetic calendar. And for those of you that have never studied this, turn back to the book of Daniel. He truly pulls together what all those prophets wrote about. And if you understand Daniel as it correlates to the book of Revelation, you can really fit your prophetic framework together. But if you only read Daniel, then you're kind of in a, in a little bit of trouble. And if you only read Revelation, you can't figure out where John's coming from. So as we put Daniel and Revelation together, we understand much. And in the ninth chapter, the 27th verse, there's a whole series of much biblical study we could study. But let me just read that 27th verse. This is talking about the 70 weeks and the Messiah coming and Gabriel who came. And and there's just a whole lot going on here. The 27th verse says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And that's about as hard to understand as any verse in the Bible. If you back up to verse 24, it says that there's 70 weeks that have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Basically, all biblical prophecy, all biblical revelation about end times is focused on one group of people, and it's not the church. It's Israel. And if you miss what God has planned for Israel, you cannot understand the future. And if you miss what God has ordained in his prophetic calendar for that national group of people who live in total unbelief these days, who lived with a veil over their eyes to this day, who live with grossly blinded eyes to this day, then you miss what God is doing because God has decreed 70 weeks. You say, what is 70 weeks? Well, 70 weeks, as biblically described here, are 490 years. 70 times 7 equals 490. And God says that there are 70 weeks that he has ordained. And if you look at the inception of the return of the Jews to the land, in the time of Cyrus, and if you chart out from the time they they went back and started the sacrifice in Jerusalem until Jesus Christ came and offered himself as a sacrifice, if you want to get out your calendar, and people have spent their lifetime studying this, miraculously enough, as the Bible is miraculous, from the time that they returned after the 70-year captivity until the time that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for the sin of the world, is exactly 483 years. That's 69 weeks of years. What's amazing is that the 27th verse says that there's one week that's left. And it says he'll make a covenant with the many for one week. There are still seven years of biblical prophecy that are out there hanging. It's kind of like when you check off your checks at the end of the month and you do your your accounting All of a sudden, you think, wow, I have a great balance until you look and there's still a check out. 
Well, in God's prophetic checkbook, 483 years of his plan from the time of the, the sacrifice restored in Jerusalem until Christ was offered is over. But then something happened, and there's a long space. And that is that Israel rejected Christ. They wouldn't have him as their king and their Messiah. And they crucified him instead. And so God said, because he knew this was going to happen, he says, and I'm going to bring in a new people of God. I'm going to bring in the church, and they're going to be the light to the world. But when I'm done with them, I'm going to come back, and there's going to be seven more years left. That's what that little pyramid is there. That's what the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven is. And right in the center of God's prophetic plan for the world and for the universe and for bringing back the control of the universe to the Lord Jesus Christ and to bring that title deed back and to unleash God's wrath on fallen mankind is a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. It says here that someone, and this someone is the Antichrist, is going to make a firm covenant with the many. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice. And what we know from the book of 2 Thessalonians is that this person, and you can turn there if you want, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the first 12 verses, are all about this mysterious person. He's the man of lawlessness. He is the beast or the antichrist. This one is going to come, and he's going to be a political superhero of our world. And if things were close, they're close now. Because our world is coming to a point where we're talking about the cessation of atomic bomb production. We're talking about the reduction of atomic stockpiles. We're talking about the disarmament of, of hostile nations in, in powder keg areas of the world. We're talking about a new world order. And that new world order is going to be headed by this man in chapter 2. And he is going to come and he is going to be revealed, verse 3 says... And an apostasy, a global apostasy is going to come. And what apostasy is, is the total taking out of doctrine out of the church. And just have everybody go on emotions and feeling and love and signs and wonders. And the world is going to come to a point where they're going to say doctrine divides. We don't want doctrine. We just want love. And when you have love and no doctrine, you have apostasy. Because God says, my love is based on the fact that all have fallen short of my glory and they must be redeemed. And they must be redeemed by God become human flesh, and that's Jesus Christ. And as soon as you take out doctrine, you lose Jesus Christ, you lose the redemption, you lose his sacrifice for sin, you lose his blood poured out, you lose any kind of distinction of what God's doing, and pretty soon you get into universalism where everybody's going to go to heaven. And that's where we are. And I don't know if you realize it, but you and I are very strange in this world. That you would be here on Sunday night looking at an old dusty book that nobody can agree on and is subject to everybody's interpretation and you can cut and choose as you will. We are kind of strange in this world. We're getting stranger by the minute. But this man of lawlessness comes. He's the son of destruction, verse 3 says. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And how the world's going to finally agree is... They're going to finally say, everybody disagrees on religion. Let's have one world religion. Let's worship you. Since you brought peace to the whole planet, let's worship you. And so the earth is going to go into a period of unprecedented peace for three and a half years. Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 38 that Israel is actually going to lay down their arms. Now that will be a day, won't it? That is the finest trained air force and one of the most successful armies in history. And they're going to lay down their arms 
Ezekiel says that they're going to be in unwalled villages. That means they're not going to be protecting themselves. They're actually going to buy into this global peace thing. And in that instant, at the midpoint, Daniel says in Daniel 9.27, that this man, this, this satanic indwelt world leader, is going to exalt himself and display himself as being God. And he is going to unleash upon the world one of the greatest outflows of, of occultic, deceptive power. And as he does that, God's going to let the world unravel. And he's going to say, he wants to show the occult, I'll show the occult. And what happens in the tribulation hour is three and a half years, the bottom side or the, the slanted down right-hand side of that pyramid, the last three and a half years are going to be the total unraveling of the world. And I've described many times, it's going to be a time when God lets loose all the hordes of satanic, demonic creatures, and they're going to come and inhabit this earth. They're going to come and just cause people to be so afraid they're going to die from fear of all the horror that's there. And the world's going to culminate in Revelation 16, which is the time of Armageddon. What's the purpose of the tribulation? It's twofold. We're going to see this as we plod through the book of Revelation. The tribulation number one and foremost is to bring Israel back to God. And after they've laid down their arms and after they have let the beast come into their temple and after all that's happened, he starts making himself out as God. They're going to realize that they believed in the wrong one and they're going to start running for their lives. And the tribulation hour is going to culminate with the Jews encircled and they're going to be hiding for their very existence. Finally, all the Jews are in one place. They've been all herded into one place. And what Hitler planned to do, what Satan always wanted to do, is going to be almost within their grasp. And at that instant, in Revelation 16, they all gather in a place called Har Mageddon, the plain of Megiddo. It's a beautiful battlefield. Many battles have been fought there. Napoleon said it was the ideal battlefield of the world. God said that much earlier. And all the nations of the earth are going to converge. It says that the hordes of the east are going to come in, uh, countless millions. It said the Confederacy of the North and the Southern Coalition, they're all going to converge to do one thing, to stamp out the only blight on the earth, the Jews. And in that instant when they come, I want you to turn there and see in Zechariah, Zechariah, if I can remember my verse and find it, uh, chapter 12. Here we go, Zechariah 12. That's just back from Matthew. This is a climactic moment. Zechariah 12, and starting in verse 10. In that instant, as the armies converge and as they encircle the Jews and as Jerusalem is besieged, and it looks hopeless, and they're going to have the life crushed out of them. In that instant, God says, I will pour out, verse 10 of Zechariah 12, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. You know, a lot of people that are very earnest-hearted Bible students, they say, I don't understand how come there's so many verses that say, hold on through the tribulation. Why would God write those verses if the church wasn't going through the tribulation? Well, all those verses also say that when you see someone in Jerusalem, flee to the Judean wilderness. And I don't live in Jerusalem, and I don't ever plan on living in Jerusalem, and this church will never be in Jerusalem. And that's because all those verses in the New Testament that talk about enduring the tribulation were written for this group of people that verse 10 says, God is going to pour out on the house of David, who are all back in the land in unbelief, 
And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they're going to be back in that land, and they're going to be multiplied, millions of them, a spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they pierced. My sins pierced Christ, but I didn't. The Jewish people did. They said, on us and on our children be the blood of this man. They said, kill him. The Jews, as well as my sin, were responsible. That doesn't mean we should kill the Jews like Luther was in favor of. It doesn't mean we should exterminate them like Calvin didn't have much use for the Jews and neither did Savonarola or Zwingli or any of those people in church history. It doesn't mean we should hate them and call them Christ killers like Protestantism has done and Catholicism for 2,000 years. It just means a simple fact that the one that they pierced, they're going to look on and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. Now quickly go to chapter 19 of Revelation. And this climactic event of Armageddon is going to trigger the second return of Jesus Christ. Christ came once, secretly. He's going to come the second time, and every eye will see him. Recently, the Jacksonville uh, Sentinel, or whatever their paper is called in Jacksonville, announced something, which I thought was very interesting. Jacksonville is one of the larger cities in America, not in population, Jacksonville, Florida, that is, but in land size, and they're incorporated city limits. The city is 800 square miles, pretty good size for the number of people. Well, they recently calculated that if every single human being on earth was standing in a generous two-foot by two-foot square, that would mean you each have four square feet, which means no one would be touching you, that you could fit every single one of the five billion people on earth inside the city limits of Jacksonville. Isn't that interesting? People don't take up that much room if, as long as they don't have houses and cars and stuff. Just people. That's why it is going to literally be possible for every single human being that's ever lived to stand before the judgment seat, the great white throne. Well, Hundreds of millions are going to converge in the Holy Land. A lot of people have trouble with that. They say, oh, it's just figurative. No, the armies of the world will all converge. And in that instant when they think that they are going to have the conquest, verse 11 of chapter 19 takes place. Armageddon has come. They've encircled the, the holy city. They've encircled the Jewish people. And I saw heaven open, verse 11 said, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it called faithful and true and righteous. He judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, a new name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the second coming that no one will miss. And Jesus Christ comes down. He defeats those armies around the nation of Israel. And his feet touch, Zechariah tells us, the Mount of Olives. And when he touches the Mount of Olives, a dramatic earthquake splits the Mount of Olives in half. And a river of water flows down to the Dead Sea and another river flows out to the Mediterranean and the whole topography of the earth changes. We enter into that period described in Matthew 25, judgment of the nations. 
And Christ comes down. He incinerates his foes. He divides up all the people that are left on the earth. And a lot of people always wondered, who is living in the millennium? Well, that's what chapter 25, if you want to turn there, of Matthew is talking all about. And it says in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on a glorious throne. And that's always been the conflict in the years. How can Christ come in 1 Thessalonians 4 and only some people see him? But yet it says right here he's going to come and all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them, verse 32 says. The one from the other, he'll, as the shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And verse 33 says he puts the goats on his left and the sheep on his right. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed to my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What is all this? Well, it's two different comings. When Christ comes for his church, for his bride, when he does that, he doesn't touch the earth. Every eye does not see him. Those that pierce him don't look on him. He comes in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we're snatched is a word. There's no snatching going on here. There's obliteration, and there's carnage, but there's no snatching. This is Christ coming down and planting himself on earth. This is not Christ taking saints out. This is Christ, Christ splitting up the, the good from the bad. And that is after Armageddon, after he conquers those armies, after he destroys the foes of his people, he actually sets up shop on earth and puts on a, a throne on this earth. And the Jews get to build this immense temple that is talked about for eight chapters in the Bible. You know, you could put all the verses in the Bible about the virgin birth and the Trinity and it wouldn't even fill one chapter. Did you know there are eight chapters talking about the millennial temple? And there are people that don't even believe in a millennium? It's amazing what is important to God. And he says that there is going to be a temple built during this period of time. And that thing is going to be so big and it's described in so much detail that it's actually going to be large enough to make Mecca look like nothing. And the Arabs have shown us that you can run millions of people through a shrine. St. Peter's is a proof of that. And this is going to be a, a temple that is going to be a thousand-year testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his sacrifice. And Christ peoples the millennium in chapter 25 of the book of Matthew with those who believed on him. Verse 41 says, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He's going to separate the goats from the sheep. And those who believe and those who in the tribulation hour were converted and those Jews that were converted at the last moment, those people will enter in to the millennial reign of Christ. And for 1,000 years, God is going to hold back the curse. And that's what chapter 11 of Isaiah and a multitude of other passages are talking about when it talks about that the Venomous creatures will not have venom anymore, that the carnivorous creatures will not be eating flesh anymore, that all of the curse will be pulled back, that weeds will not conquer the earth anymore, that thistles will not be raining, that man will no longer have to, by the sweat of his brow, till the earth. It will go back to being like Eden. The curse is not removed, it's only held back. The biblical prophecy says that for 1,000 years, God is going to show what the ecologists, what the earth first people, and what all these People that are trying to preserve the dying species have always wanted. It's going to happen. There's going to be no pollution. There's going to be no poison. There's going to be no toxic anything. It's going to be a perfectly beautiful place. And God's going to let man see what he let Adam and Eve see. A marvelous, curse-reduced and pulled-back earth. Well, what happens? Well, those few people that start the millennium live for a thousand years, and they... 
have children and children and children. And Isaiah tells us, and we don't have time to go in this until we get there in Revelation 20, but Isaiah tells us that a young man will be a hundred, and he will be cut off at a hundred if he is rebellious. So in other words, the rod of iron is God will not let anyone be overtly rebellious or he will kill them during the theocratic rule of Jesus Christ on earth. And during that time, it says that mankind will mushroom to being innumerable and countless like the sands of the seashore. And yet every generation that is born, there are more and more of them. And what we see is that though there is a perfect environment, a perfect environment can't make a perfect heart. Only regeneration can change people. And there will be an increasing number of unbelieving people that are subjugated by Christ's rule but are not believing in him. And then we come to Revelation 20. And what we see at the end of this millennial reign of Christ, this thousand-year period, where Satan is bound in chapter 1 of Revelation 20, and it says that the thrones are set up and, and all of the activities of the millennium take place. But at the end of the thousand years, verse 7 takes place of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are completed, and you know I have great difficulty with someone that says there's no millennium because it's very rare that anything is mentioned so often. And in this chapter it says seven times that there will be a 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. You know what that means to some people? It means that Satan is bound right now and Christ is reigning. You know what I say? If Satan's bound right now, he has a long chain because he is running to and fro in this earth. And we do not see any type of holding back of his power. But, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He is in a prison for a thousand years. At the end of that time period, it says... He will come out, verse 8, deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together them together to war, and the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they shall come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And in that instant, that they think that they can destroy the millennial temple and destroy the headquarters that God had placed on the earth, in that instant it says there's not going to be any warfare. It says in verse 9, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's it. That's it. A thousand years are up. And he's finally once and for all proven that a perfect environment will not make perfect people. Only a changed heart. You can clean the environment all you want and you can clean up society. But the only permanent change is a heart transplant by Jesus Christ. And the devil, verse 10, who deceived them, was thrown in the lake of fire of brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then are the sad words, the great white throne is set up, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and he who sat upon the throne from whose face the heavens and earth fled away, and I saw the dead, small and great. And their judge, and whosoever's name, verse 15 says, was not found in the book of life, is cast in the lake of fire. After that time period, there's an indefinite time period that Daniel talks about where God kind of adjusts between time and eternity, and in that instant there's a, very mysterious thing that takes place. We go from, from a, a rolled back curse to what Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3. And what he says there is that God is going to climactically destroy all the physical universe. Not the spiritual universe, the physical universe. And he's going to change it all. And there's no longer going to be a place where righteousness does not dwell. Except for that one eternal lake of fire which is down in the bottom on the right. And then, what Revelation 21 and 22 happen, what that describes happens, and that means that there is time 
No more. There's no more sickness, pain, death. No more darkness. There's no more temple. There's no need of a temple because you don't need a temple because we will all have God with us for eternity. And what God began at creation, what God offered man in the Garden of Eden, he gives to man never to have any rebellion take place again. He gives us eternally his presence with him. As the songwriter said, and he walks with me and talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the culmination of all biblical prophecy is as God brings his redemptive people together, both of them, by the way, the Jews are not second class, and the Old Testament saints aren't second class. We are merged together at the marriage of the Lamb. And by the time we find the conclusion, we find everyone harmoniously dwelling together with God forever. And that's biblical prophecy, and that's what God has planned. And I just hope that it causes each one of us to have a whole different outlook on life. Nothing happens to us that God is not aware of. And nothing happens to us that God is not orchestrating for his glory. He is concertedly working together all events in our lives for his glory. What does God want from us, the church? He wants us to be a light to this world. He wants us to worship him. He doesn't want us to build up every single physical possession we can to pass on to the Antichrist when we get taken out of this world. He wants us to invest every possible resource of time and biblical giftedness and physical talents and financial resources and the very energies of our souls to see as many people as he has ordained come to join in that chorus of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I hope someday that when you and I are standing at chapter 5, of Revelation, where we began this evening. I hope that you will be able to truly say, verse 12, that the Lamb of God, you are so worthy. You were slain for me, that I might have power and riches and wisdom and might, and I was given the honor and glory and blessing of being your servant, that I have given it all back to you. You know, eternity is going to be a measure. And it says that those in Daniel chapter 12 that have turned many to righteousness are going to shine as the stars forever. And I hope you don't relegate that great honor to the few. I hope all of you will someday shine as stars forever and ever because your life has been spent turning people to righteousness not in building up every earthly comfort that can be grasped. Christ's message for our church of our day was, you're rich, you're prosperous, and you have need of nothing. That's where we've gotten to. And he says, I call you to repent, get spiritual eyes, and start laboring for what is eternal. I thank you, dear Lamb, you who are worthy, to receive glory, honor, and dominion, and majesty, and power. That you have loved us and redeemed us for a purpose. I pray that in every one of our hearts you would reveal that purpose. That you would humble us under your mighty hand. That you would cleanse us of every filthiness of the flesh and spirit. 
that we might offer worship that is pleasing in your sight, and that we might glorify you. That's our only desire. We yield ourselves to you to that end. For Jesus.